Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's up, everybody? It is uh, June 17th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast, episode 210. We're recording this live. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Hello. How are you, Nick? There he is. I am good, Blake. Um, just a quick programming note before we jump into the news tonight. Uh, just a quick follow up to last week's show. We do have our most recent deep dive uh, out there on the internet waves for your consumption. Um, so please check that out. Uh, and we do have just a couple more spots left in our digital media lab. If you are interested in helping out the show or want to get involved, we do have a couple spaces left. So please feel free to reach out to us. Um, all right. Well, we know why everyone's here. I think that was the quickest intro I've ever done. So let's go ahead and get into it. It being Human Factors News, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors, from privacy and medical applications to security and AI. This story has a little bit of everything in it. Uh, as long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it's fair game. So, Blake, what do we have up this week? Up this week, we're talking about how computers can predict our preferences directly from our brains. So a research team from the University of Copenhagen and the University of Helsinki have demonstrated it's possible to predict individual preferences based on how a person's brain responses matches up with others. So this could potentially be used to provide individually tailored media content and perhaps even to enlighten us a little bit about ourselves or our own preferences. So we have become accustomed to online algorithms trying to guess our preferences from everything from movies to music to news and shopping. Uh, this is based not only on what we've searched for, looked at, or listened to, but it's also on how these activities compare to each other. Collaborative filtering is a technique that, this, that is used to kind of identify these hidden patterns in our behavior and the behavior that our responses kind of elicit. But what if algorithms could use responses from our brain rather than just our behavior? It may sound like science fiction, but a project co combining computer science and cognitive neuroscience has showed that the brain-based collaborative filtering is indeed possible. So by using an algorithm to match an individual's pattern of brain responses with, uh, with those of others, researchers from both of these universities were actually able to predict a person's attraction to a not-yet-seen face. So, Nick, I mean, there's no better way to describe this than the article does. It does sound super science fiction-y, but it's really interesting that it's tying it to, you know, existing technology that we're all kind of familiar with, even if it's passively familiar with it. But now using that concept to understand how your brain works. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, long story short here, you put device on brain, algorithm interprets brain signals, and determines what your preference is, right? That's... Bob's your uncle. You're good to go. Long story short. All right. So we're going to go ahead and move into this. Next. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so so let's actually sit here. Let's break it down because there's uh, seemingly not much going on with this, but at the same time, a lot going on with this. So um, I think the new part of this is pairing these brain signals that we've been able to measure for quite some time, pairing it with an algorithm that then actually can predict which 
preference you have in the study they used images of people. Um, so <laughs> let's let's use that caveat here. Uh, we're not we're not suggesting that this is predicting preferences for things like food, although I feel like it would probably transfer pretty well to food. I, I think it, so. It's not also um, trying to look at preferences for things that may be closer in approximations than others, right? So, like, you know, I feel like with people, in a lot of cases, you have a clear preference for one person or another. I feel with food, that is also true. Uh, but, you know, let's say you have a choice between two awful alternatives. Would you rather burn to death or get, you know, ran over by a ambulance? You know, it's like, well, I don't know which one I have a preference for. This is kind of the first steps to maybe being able to determine that someday. Um, well, that's that's an interesting comparison, right? Because that's that's exactly what the article is talking about. Is that it's kind of getting away from just behavior based decision making or or information gathering, and now it's it's using a little bit more than that. So it's not like based on what you're currently doing. It's I guess based on just electrical inputs and how that translates into what preference or choice you might make. Um, so it's it's getting, I think, a little bit more predictive, if you will, instead of just like suggestions based off of old behaviors. Yeah, predict predictive is a loaded term, and it's a strong claim. Um, and so let's let's make sure that we're talking about this appropriately. And and the article suggests that they're predicting now what your preference would be based on your brainwaves. And um, you know, up to this point, we're we're detecting. Uh, these preferences, um, and I realize there's a title a typo in our little caption. There. I'm going to fix that really quick. We're we're detecting these preferences, um, and uh, now this article is suggesting that we are now predicting these. So it's um it's kind of a leap to go from detection to prediction, but I think it's an important one because this is kind of that first stepping stone to uh, that. You know, would you rather get burned alive or get hit by an ambulance? Right, both are not <laughs> not good all not good um, outcomes for you, but you must choose one. Right, like I think I think we're getting closer to that. So, um, you want to walk through how this is being done, Blake? Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about like what's been done prior, and then we'll talk about like how this is different. That sounds uh, good. So. Previously, I mean, lots of research has been done with EEGs, kind of trying to understand what's going on in your brain when you're either experiencing certain phenomena or you're seeing things on a screen or you're interacting with software. Uh, in this case, a, a lot of what's typically used, and I feel like this is definitely a something you see a lot in psychology work because it's like recognizing faces. So as, as children, we start to like recognize what emotions are and things like that through stimuli in our environment. So having something like this is kind of a nice baseline. And we've been able to, in the past, of course, kind of understand what happens in the brain firing wise and what parts of the brain are activated and kind of make associations or correlations between what that means. Uh, but in this case, we're now kind of putting that on steroids in some cases in terms of the data analysis part. So by adding an algorithm or pu putting machine learning behind this, we're actually able to understand a little bit more based on this study what that electrical activity means when you're detecting faces even before you see something. Um, so before you're actually able to make a behavior, it's almost judging what, what that behavior may be. 
Uh, so uh, that sounds pretty convoluted, but ultimately it's it's kind of it's in some ways intuitive, right? Because if you're able to collect brain signals, if you were able to analyze them and see patterns over time, you might be able to kind of start to see trends or understand potential behaviors before they actually happen. So that's the the quote unquote predictive part that we're seeing. Yeah, and we can we can certainly get into the implications of what predictive technology means um, or pr- predictive. Uh, I don't even know their, their outcomes. Um, but I do want to, again, I kind of want to preface this whole article here is like, we're looking at human faces here in this article and uh, humans are built to analyze human faces for emotions. We're built to analyze them for potential mates. We're built to analyze them to detect deception. We're built to analyze faces as humans. You look at my face or Blake's face and you are taking in more information than just the words that we're saying based on body language and visual cues. Even if you were to just look at a picture of us, it's different than, um, you know, just hearing our voices. And so um, keep that in mind. I feel like it's a stretch to apply this in a broad stroke and this is a great first step um and and we can like i said we can certainly talk about the implications here but i think uh it's interesting that they used faces because it's kind of one of the most primal sort of uh brain functions that we have is to detect friend or foe to um detect deception that type of thing um so i i uh I like where this is going. Do we want to talk about sort of uh, the the experiment itself? Yeah. So the basic experimental kind of process here is it's very similar to what you would expect um, in any of these kind of studies that deal with EEGs, right? So really you had participants were shown a large amount of images of human faces like we talked about, and they were asked to, you know, respond in did they find the the face attractive? And so really what we're doing here is we're measuring brain signals as they make that behavioral choice, but then the fun part comes. So by using some, I, I wonder if it's a, if it's a supervised learning machine model or not, but anyway, that doesn't matter. So what they did then is they took that data, ran it through their uh, machine learning model to really understand like, okay, what's going on brain activity wise. And then how can we use that information Uh, to see if we can predict what somebody's going to say in terms of are they going to judge a face attractive or not attractive. Um, And it looks like, based off of this study anyway, they were able to predict um, with some some pretty good relevancy what people were actually going to say here. So by using taking all that brainwave data, analyzing it, they could understand on a person-by-person basis what those preferences were going to be for faces. And Nick, I, I know you, you did a good job of breaking down the fact that this is something that we're, we're geared up from the inside to do, to analyze a face, to understand kind of the contextual factors that, you know, a, what a face means. So this, to me, this almost makes sense that we, that yes, you would be able to probably predict a response of by like recording electronic signals, but also at the same time, you may even be able to yourself predict how you would respond to this kind of stuff. But I think the the wider applications that they're trying to say are coming from this are really where they're kind of getting the most bang for their buck out of the story. I agree. And we can kind of talk about the application, right? I, I do want to mention that um, one thing I, I don't know if we've made perfectly clear is that this is using existing data 
um, from a data set to predict your response. And so uh, based on your brainwave. So that's huge in the sense that you don't have to have data on yourself. Uh, Obviously, as you get more data to the to this algorithm, it will better predict your preference. But to begin, you don't even need data on yourself to for for the system to kind of come up with something where they're um, predicting, right? Isn't that kind of incredible, though? Because I mean, yeah. it does mention that there is a little, like a partially the the algorithm was used was taking in that participant's data, but. The fact that it's like an amalgamation of a lot of different data points from various people and still being able to see a like a predictive quality in this case for face attractiveness approval or or not in some cases that just kind of blows my mind. Yeah, it's nuts that they don't have to compare this against your own previous behavior or previous responses. And so that I think is the biggest thing here is that they're, they're taking brain signals and they are predicting what you will do based on a larger data set um, of brain responses. And so uh, that in itself is is really important. But let's talk about some of these um, applications here, because I think I think once you get beyond the, you know, a primal function to detect faces, um, <laughs> there can be some pretty significant um, implications here. And I think we can even start at... Um, face detection, right? I think like like let's think about um dating apps or something like that, right? So I I can imagine a world where, you know, they're they're using these attractive faces to test the, this technique and y- you could apply this to dating apps in the future and it's like, well, y- you know, y- you can almost I I haven't I don't know what the data looks like. So I'm I'm speculating here, but is there a way to determine strength of preference. You know, like I have a strong preference for this person. And then maybe those results come through on the other end and say, hey, someone's got a strong preference for you. Um, and how do you message that to make it not creepy? And, you know, there's all <laughs> there's all these issues with it. But like, <laughs> can you imagine this type of thing being applied to a dating app where maybe it gives you two images and it detects what preference, or or even to get you started, it shows you a series of images of people on the website and builds up your profile. Again, this study doesn't need that history, but the more data it has, obviously, the better it's going to be. It gives you kind of this setup, and then it will only recommend people that fall within your preference. And that's a very shallow way of looking at it, but at the same time, it's going to make these dating websites and applications money ultimately because it's like hey we you know and we can talk about the the fact that this technology is not miniaturized and it's not readily accessible right now they anticipate within the next 10 years is what the study says but think about that application in the future right like is that a paid tier where you could pay they send you a device you put it on and you get access to those preferred profiles based on your response well that's like the cool thing about this whole this whole type of study i've got like two things i'm going to try and keep a working memory here but the the biggest one write them down (laughs) write them down the big the biggest one being like what you just said right so what what implications does it have for the future well not only does it have like impacts on applications as we know it but could you imagine that there's something built into a wearable like like glasses that 
would it would be able to collect this information on you continuously and enhance how you however in 10 years we're viewing the next mobile device whether it's like glasses on your face or some kind of combination of a phone and wearables whatever i mean that just it means that there's going to be a lot more expansion of technology to really understand not just your preferences but you know I'm not even sure this is the right word, like biometric data at an electrical signal level. So there's there's a lot of opportunity from just a tech development wearable perspective, too, on top of science like this. The one thing that's that you really sparked when you were talking about like like a dating app, and this is something I don't know a whole lot about. I've had I've had the fortune fortunate experience with a lot of students through Design Lab who have talked to me a lot more about TikTok and its algorithm and how good it is in terms of the recommendations of content that it provides you in a curated format. So it would be interesting to know, like, with a more powerful algorithm or more powerful, you know, machine learning model that's already been developed, how that enhances, you know, the capabilities that you can predict and provide people with things that they want or things that they may even need. Um, with this electrical signal data being pumped in. So just, I and I think this article does a pretty good job of calling out, like this is really getting that personalized level of different types of things you'll experience from a media perspective, potentially um, very honed in for sure. Even if you're not aware that you're interested in some things. Yeah, I think you really quick, you made a great callback to wearable technology. So if you haven't already, go listen to last week's episode and check out the deep dive on that because it goes into a lot more depth on the wearable situation right now and kind of creating those biometric markers. Um, now, I I want to jump into... So we've kind of taken the direct application, right? Dating websites is kind of like a an obvious extension of this research here because we're looking at faces. Now... I want to talk a little bit broader, and then we'll go even broader than that. So, like, let's let's think about um, people who are concerned with privacy, right? It's a big conversation. Um, and so, if this was a requirement for certain things in the future, um, and I'm being fairly ambiguous there, we can talk about what these things are. Um, you know, would it be necessarily need? <laughs> would these things need to be? so beneficial that it outweighs the risk of privacy do you trade off privacy for convenience or um or lower prices or anything like that you know kind of like the rewards card system where you you give them your information you give them your your email so they can send you deals and bring you back in um at the cost of or i guess at the benefit to you at lower prices um and so you know is that is that what does that trade-off look like somewhere in the future, right? What do you think, Blake? Yeah, I mean, so you're almost paying with your electrical brain signals to help somebody else get, you know, better better information about you, preferential data. It's like that. It's the whole problem probably that we experience with uh, privacy and use agreement terms. So really understanding what you're signing up and allowing to have happen. And I think it creates a scary line in some ways because you – if we end up in a in the situation we did with like our mobile devices, right? Well, like we have them all the time, and we start using all the applications without really understanding the implication of what we're doing or what we what we sign up for when we download an app and accept agreements. Same thing could happen with any kind of wearable tech, where you if you're not 
really clued into what you're signing up to do and you're not reading through guidance, you could have a lot of your privacy in some ways hacked or hijacked. Um, so it does come with a pretty big cost. Um, so I don't, from my perspective, I'm not sure how, if people are made aware enough of it, how willing they would be to kind of sacrifice that amount of privacy. Because the the big thing about this entire story is the potential to unearth things about yourself that you maybe don't think are true. We'll get there. Or we'll get there. Yeah. So that's the that's the big problem. For yeah. Sure. Those are a couple other points I want to make. I do just want to quickly um, talk about privacy. One more thing here is that um, you know it, there's there's the whole question of whether companies and um, I guess. If, if if entities, let's just call them entities, if entities will take advantage of this data. And, um, you know, one thing I do want to call out in this article, they say here that they don't see this method as a useful way for advertisers and streaming services to sell products or retain users. Um, Keith Davis, lead author here, uh, this is a quote from him. I consider our study as a step towards an era that some refer to as mindful computing, in which, by using a combination of computers and neuroscience techniques, users will be able to access unique information about themselves. Uh, and so, um, basically, they're thinking of this as a tool to understand somebody, their, their own, your own self better, uh, and not necessarily as a tool for these other things. Um, before we get into some of these other questions, I do want to I, I do want to point out um, Kristen from our lab here is actually saying that the area in the cortex of the brain is called the fusiform face area. I might not be saying that correctly, but um, fun little fact about neuroscience. Uh, so thank you for that comment, Kristen. Really appreciate that. Um, and so uh, I, I want to get into a couple of these other questions here, or I guess not questions, but prompts really um about the future of this so we kind of took it from the most direct application with dating apps and then we took it a step further with privacy and then you alluded to blake sort of this this larger impact of what happens if this if these predictions don't match up with who you want to be or who you feel like you are and so there's there's a couple questions here about how do we um, communicate preference? How do we be mindful with that delivery of information when um, presenting it to somebody to minimize those negatives, right? And then another question would be, uh, how might we change our own preferences if we have a computer telling us what our preferences are and how would it kind of impact our behavior? So let's start with the question of, how can we be mindful about the delivery of this information to somebody if it may not match up with who you want to be, right? You might have a preference that uh, ultimately says um, you are in direct contradiction to the things that you want to be. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to give any specific examples to trigger anybody here, but you can imagine in your own brain what that might be. How do we handle this messaging problem? Like, I'm asking you to come up with a solution right now off the top of your head. Do it. This is kind of ironic because so last night I was at a I was at a talk with the lead designer from Headspace. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know, Headspace is a meditation app, or at least that's how it started. It's kind of interesting the evolution of it now. 
but they had to kind of figure out how to deal with similar concepts. So they do a lot of content that's related to um, like mental health. So stuff like depression and anxiety, hard topics to deal with. And how do you communicate that in a way that makes people feel comfortable, but at the same time also makes them, you know, feel like they can take action to change things. Uh, and through the through the talk last night, a lot of what how this was done was uh, like choice and voice actors, of course. But the biggest thing was the overall design of the applications that they were creating. So using a lot of and for, the easiest way to put it is friendly animations that made hard topics like depression or suicide or any of that stuff feel more like they could be approached and kind of like showing the benefit of a specific you know, whatever you want to call it, like mediation technique for dealing with stress or dealing with anxiety. So I think it comes down to how this information is being used and presented and in what form somebody's actually getting it. So if it's, if it's in the case, like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard because we've only dealt with faces, but let's say that there was, you, you were using a dating app and you saw that you thought you were you know, a, an attractive person or something like that. How do we communicate that information back to you <laughs> in you a way that, that you're not? <laughs> well, how do you communicate that maybe you don't fit the, or you're not like people that you're attracted to are not necessarily always attracted to you. So how do you communicate that in a way that helps kind of somebody either understand themselves a little bit better. So maybe there's personal sides of it or whatever it may be. But there's a lot of potential in this data that they're gathering, right? Because if you, because there's a lot of capability to have actionable insights about yourself that you maybe cannot uncover consciously without doing a lot of self-work. So it definitely comes down to what application this is coming through and then how that message is conveyed to you. Because at the end of the day, you have to be the one to accept is this is this your reality, right? And it's kind of hard to understand like what this is taking my brain signals and basically telling me that I have different opinions or different thoughts than I actually do. And then what do I actually what do I do with that information? So providing people also with actionable steps to correct behavior if they want to or deal with it if they need to. It's a, it's a weird line to try and walk for sure. Yeah, messaging is insanely important. Um and I think that is going to be a real challenge. Uh, and I, I talk about messaging all the time on the show, but like it, it really is going to be a challenge with how do you present this information in a way that doesn't or, or slowly sort of molds somebody into accepting um, their preference is, is not in line with who they think they are, or who they thought they were. Um, and so uh you know, there's 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 a couple things going on right there. There could be the instance where this is not who I want to be, and then there's this is not who I think I am, and that one I think is a little bit more scary, where you yeah. have this disassociation between your preferences or what you thought was your preference and the, what your brain is actually saying, um, and that might lead to a lot of people uh, being confused. That cognitive dissonance, like that, you know, that's so. Yeah, I think. Um, messaging is important, but then also sort of the understanding how it came to that um, sort of conclusion as well, right? So not only the result, but how it got there as well. So you can understand, 
sort of the algorithms that are taking place. Like it's 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 really confusing because you can look at something and go, that makes no sense to me. How did you get that from my brain waves? But if you're able to say, well, this P wave detector is actually going to result in 95% of the time, this, that, the other thing, this may not actually be your preference, but this is what we predict your preference is going to be. And so the communication piece is not just the outcome, but also the process of getting to that outcome so that people have trust in this algorithm. And we've talked about trust in automation before, and this trust in this algorithm is going to be hugely important um, because who controls this algorithm? Is there racial bias built into it? Those types of things are going to have a large impact on whether people trust the outcome of these things. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot going on there. The, the other question I want to talk about here is if we have a computer telling us what we predict or basically who we are, um, then how does this impact our behaviors going forward? Do you have any speculation on that piece? Yeah, I don't know. Because it, if you understand that there's technology out there that's going to be able to predict your behavior, um, what would you do if you knew that was the case? So would you act in a different way consistently to give... Yeah, project your own type of bias of who you want it to be. So would it have influence on people's behavior? Uh, I think that's probably the biggest one. Now, in terms of like having something like this that can do that, I mean, I feel like that just makes stuff like AdSense, you know, yeah. on on top of steroids. And so it it in some cases it's not gonna it's gonna be you know seamless like a lot of technology can be to the end user. Uh, but one thing that I don't know if you could even really change what you would be able to do with this type of information. I'm completely unsure of. Because if I if I knew that there was something out there that could predict the way that I think and I happen to knew something specifically that I had learned from an algorithm like this, um, would it make me actively change my own behaviors? Probably if it was something I wanted to fix. But I'm not really sure how it would impact my like day-to-day, if you will. Yeah, I think... Um I think you kind of alluded to it at the beginning. It was like uh, what I was understanding was, is this a fake it till you make it situation where if you know that the algorithm is going to provide some outcome, do you behave in a different way than to change the predicted outcomes because that's who you want to be? Um, I don't know. Uh, That's a good question and I don't really know how to answer it. And I think it'll be a while before we actually have that data of how these types of predictions will affect our uh, social interactions and uh, behaviors going forward. But I think this all comes back to sort of that mindful computing that um, lead author pointed out here um, is kind of a, a way to understand us better, ourselves better, and using it as a tool. Um, and maybe that is the... Um, intervention maybe that is the the way in which we change our behavior is to see oh you actually you know prefer this thing when in fact i don't want to prefer that thing i want to prefer this other thing and so maybe that is the intervention to where you start changing your behavior to start preferring other things and i'm being fairly ambiguous here because this could apply to a lot of situations 
Um, one thing from the chat here that I do want to bring up, uh, question is, do you have speculation on how brainwave detections could be racially biased? And yes, I mean, we've we've talked about on the show before sort of uh, algorithmic bias and how sort of algorithms can have racial bias, especially in things where you have like facial recognition technology. And that's why a lot of um, that's why a lot of cities and laws are being passed to ban facial recognition until we have a better understanding of them until later. And I can imagine a very similar situation here where let's say all of your test subjects are white. And so maybe you are only comparing preference of um, test subjects against a white data set. And so not necessarily have, um, you know, you have a black participant or something and they uh, react to images differently. And we just don't have enough data in the data set to distinguish between, um, you know, all that, all that comes with uh, differences in race, ethnicity, and culture, right? So that's, I think, the biggest danger with some of the racial bias being inherent or included in some of these algorithms. Blake, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, it. I mean, unfortunately, it's just a problem that machine learning has to deal with before we can really assume that any other technology that's built on top of it is going to have any different outcome. Because if you, it's especially here, because we're talking about not only are we looking at your brain signals or waves and how you're reacting to situations, it's meant to be an aggregate of a bunch of different others. But those those other pieces, if they're not well rounded, if it's not from a diverse set of people, then you're going to get a whole bunch of kind of specific trends. If it's like from a similar similar population of people, them all reacting to the same stimulus. It's not going to be, you know, a well-rounded piece of technology um, until it gets, you know, enough data that it's actually taking into account a lot of different types of people's preferences and actually able to do trend analysis in a way that, you know, is more personalized for you, which is what I'm imagining this eventually becomes, is if the data set is gets large enough, what it really starts to do is this this whatever they called it it was like collaborative or some type of filtering that they talk about yeah it's called collaborative filtering that this is what i think ultimately ends up happening is it's going to take the largest data set that it has access to let's say that this is this was globally deployed at some point and then it's really going to do a lot of the comparison pieces and prediction based off of i think just your brain waves and your some of your behaviors so until like that data set behind it is big enough, there's definitely going to be a lot of just bias in it just based on purely the information that it has access to. And it's just, that's a giant problem in computer science that people have not figured out how to get around yet. So I definitely, I totally agree. I think there will be a lot of potentially racial bias, but a lot of bias in general in the data uh, just until we kind of figure out how to make more nuanced decisions for machine learning models and different approaches to machine learning. I agree. Good question. All right. Well, I think uh, any other closing thoughts on this one, Blake, before we uh, move on? I just thought it was really interesting that the article really opens up with like this application of this thing that we know very well, even if it's passively known, like this collaborative filtering concept of taking in your behaviors and giving you other things that are related to that behavior. And now we're going to try and put brain 
waves on top of it, but there's this kind of kink in there that you might not actually know some of your own preferences, so you may end up liking things or saying things or reacting to things in a way that you don't expect. And I feel like that'll bring up an interesting like dichotomy of self for a lot of people. So how this cashes out in technology, I have no idea, but it's really cool. Yeah. This was a really awesome story. I'm glad we were able to break it down. Uh, if you're hanging out with us, uh, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving. So stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Huge thank you, as always, to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at the University of Copenhagen for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post those links to the original articles in our weekly news roundups as we find them. So join us over there on our website, or we post them in our Slack and Discord as well. Um... Yeah, a huge thank you to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, uh, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running, keep the lights on, so thank you all so much for your continued support. If you'd like uh, to become a patron and get access to things like Human Factors Minute or even become a show sponsor, uh, please do check that out. It really does help the show. Uh, like I said, it literally keeps the lights on. Um, you know, We use it to pay for things like the website and the hosting for the podcast so it all goes back into the show we take no money for ourselves in fact i'm so in the hole uh my wife is gonna kill me anyway with that um <laughs> why don't why don't we go ahead and get into this next part of the show it came from it came from let's switch gears and get into this next part of the show called it came from uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that the human factors community is talking about Anything is fair game. Uh, so we got we got a couple this week. We got one from Discord and we got a couple from Reddit. So let's go ahead and jump into the Discord first. Uh, this one comes, again, from he who shall not be named, Voldemort. It's pretty active over there. Uh, he writes, salaries for human factors jobs seem to be all over the place. Some colleges have their human factors in the psych department and some in engineering department. Would an engineering-focused major uh, lead to a higher average salary, or does it just depend on where you work? Blake, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I can only really speculate because I have a psych background, um, but I do have a couple of friends who got their you know HF degree through an industrial engineering department, and I can I can kind of take a guess at where they started versus where I did. Um, I definitely think it depends on where you're going. So if you're trying to get like a UX research job, you will probably run into a gamut of salary ranges. Now, if you have an engineering background and you pitch that, you could potentially have a little bit more ground, right? Especially if you had any experience working with other engineers and applying human factors in that capacity. So bringing human factors to the table. 
Um, I do know that my, in terms of attractiveness, right, like some people were able to get, you know, jobs at bigger companies with an engineering background, in my experience, um, from people that I know, immediately with little experience uh, versus like other friends of mine who took the psych route like I did. They've kind of had they've kind of had to get experience, show what they could do and learn a lot of skills on the job and then were able to kind of move to wherever they wanted to. Um, again, I think it really just depends on where you're applying, like where that's going to be. Cause I, I really don't know if I've seen too many times with, with a human factors job post an HCI job post or a UXR job post, like, okay, I'm looking specifically for a PhD with an engineering background in human factors. I've just seen, I want this type of degree that's going to give you a level up. But other than that, in terms of if you had an engineering side or engineering starter or psych start, there's not a whole lot of difference in terms there. Uh, but Nick, what's your experience in this this realm, or what do you think? Also, psych background here. I think my guess here is, and and I even t- I said this in the chat. It depends. Mp3. Um, I think the the main difference between the two is going to be starter salary. Um, I think the type of job that you are open to or that you are able to get into straight out of school is going to be um it's going to be different based on which experience you have uh with a with an engineering degree i feel like you probably have access to higher tier or higher salary jobs right out of the market where a psych background may not have that and because of that i feel like over time you're more likely to, as you jump from career to career or get go advancements in your position, uh, get higher up at a company, um, your starter salary is kind of the anchor for that. And so I would probably trend overall engineering probably higher just based on that one fact alone is that you anchor higher right out of school. I wouldn't say, you know, that should discourage anybody from going the psych route, Um I think it does depend on the type of industry that you're in. And um, so, again, I don't want to discourage anyone from going the psych route. Blake and I both went the psych route, and we're doing fine. Except my wife is going to kill me because I've spent so much on a podcast. But, you know, that's aside aside from that, we're doing fine. Um, I think there's there's one other um, community comment here that I, I do want to bring in. This is from Barilla also in our discord uh they say in my experience in engineering plus human factors leads to a higher salary at least in the defense industry outside you may be able to gain some more traction with a side of ux so again it just kind of depends on which industry you're going into and uh kind of what on the job training you get um if you are from a psych background and sort of what you make of your engineering degree if you come from that background too so it it just depends and it's not a great answer um but it's you know it's a good question that i know a lot of people have so we wanted to make sure we talked about it on the show um any other closing thoughts with that one there blake no i mean i think for those that may be on the fence about which one makes the most sense i definitely agree i think engineering may give you the starter salary that you're looking for if that's like a real real thing to be paying attention to when you start Uh, but i think in terms of which one makes more sense to do i would just look at the programming content for whatever degree and see which ones align with your interests more Um, because you may find that the engineering stuff just really excites you 
Um, or you may find that there's like psych sides and like the, the data analysis part there that focuses heavy on quantitative may be really interesting as well. So I think I would weigh all that stuff kind of in the balance. Yeah, I think uh, one more comment on this. I think they give you different skill sets. Engineering gives you a skill set of how to approach a problem from a practical perspective. It also gives you uh, skill with writing um, very objective things like requirements. And so that can really help out. I think psychology gives you a more loose toolkit of being flexible with how to approach a problem. And these are broad generalizations here. I'm not trying to say all programs are like this, but at least I know they kind of approach problems in a different way and they complement each other very well, which is why human factors is kind of the perfect confluence of both, um, you know, kind of industries. And so take that with what you will. Um, anyway, let's get on to this next one here. Uh, thank you, Voldemort, for that question. This next one, uh, what made you decide to take up HCI? This is from the Human Factors, or sorry, the HCI subreddit, but we'll go ahead and apply it towards Human Factors. This is from Advanced Page. They go on to write, I'm just curious on how you end up taking uh, taking up HCI, or, or Human Factors in this case. What inspired you or motivated you to take this path? Blake. Here we go. This will be fun. Origin uh, so story. We'll make- yeah, I'll make clips out of this, I'm sure. So just a little background of myself, and I feel confident that I can say this now because it's been so many years. So I am a failed uh, aerospace engineer. Like that was my background. That's what I went to school for originally. Like that was what I was going to do. I was going to go work on planes of Boeing. Um, and in some ways, I got really bored with some of the engineering classes. I just wasn't interested in stuff that wasn't application-based. So I fell into psychology, uh, funny enough, through somebody who I actually have worked with recently. Um, he used to be a professor at Auburn, where I went and got my undergrad. But so I was on the track to go get a PhD in animal learning science, um, Luckily, my advisor at that point, she looked at me and said, I know what you were doing before this. You have a passion for how things work and machines and computers. Like, I really don't think you're going to be happy doing animal learning psychology with me, even though you're, you know, one of my protégés or whatever. And she recommended this thing I had never heard of. That happened to be human factors. And so I looked into it because I didn't know what it was. It wasn't like now where there, I have friends that have, you know, bachelor's degree in HF. But when I looked into it, the program that I ended up finding and getting inspired by was um, California State University Long Beach's program, which had a very deep connection with aerospace, uh, specifically NASA. So that blended a bunch of passions together. Like now I was bringing psychology, engineering, and aviation all into one place where I could learn how to make stuff better for people, like whether it's pilots, people learning to fly, whatever. In my case, it was ATCs and doing other flight deck design stuff. But it was just an awesome blend of all the things that I, by happenstance, had fallen in love with as I went through school. And so Human Factors was just a great way for me to kind of find a career, I guess is the best way to put it, but definitely came upon it by accident completely. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got here. How about you, Nick? That's Blake's origin story. Mine is actually surprisingly similar to yours. And it's funny that the best mentors are the ones that steer you in the direction, even though it's kind of against your will. So, um, or, or 
not necessarily against your will. Anyway, but my point is, my origin story is kind of like this. It's, it's almost like a failed social psych student where I was in social psych and I couldn't really find... I still love social psych. I, I just I couldn't really find a niche that I enjoyed uh, in it. And so, um, except for messaging, I really enjoy messaging, which is why it's important. <laughs> I worked in a social it psych... It all makes sense. Yeah, I worked in a social psych lab um, and... You know, it was getting to be that time where I was looking at grad schools and I was like, geez, I just I don't feel like I have that passion for a lot of these. I'm just looking for that uh, higher education because it's the next step. And, um, you know, I even applied to the program that I was at in my undergrad uh, with my mentor. And he basically said, no, I'm not accepting you. And I, I was obviously very hurt by this. And, you know, he's he said, I want to have a meeting with you to explain why. And so, um, you know, he explained why, which was, look, our, our interests are not compatible and I want you to fly. I, I don't want to hold you back by you doing things that are just for me in my lab. I want you to do things that you enjoy. Um, you know, and there was a professor here, this is his words, there was a professor here a year ago that was very much in line with your interests and he moved to another school. And so I looked at that professor. Sure enough, he was a psych professor, but it was in a human factors program up there. And so I got the human factors curriculum working with that professor. He ended up being one of the best mentors uh, I've ever had in my life and, you know, would recommend him to anybody. And and um, kind of it was the professor that led me to the human factors program Um. Or, or I guess it was it was the professor that led me to the interest that led me to the human factors program it was all on accident. It just so happened that the, the professor that I wanted was in the human factors program. And so I fell in love with the coursework while I was in it and everything just felt right. And so that's that's my origin story right there. It just it's it just kind of happened. Right. It seems like that's a common case is that a lot of people just fall into human factors. Um, yeah, I don't. I wonder how how common it'll become because, like, now that there are a lot of programs out there that have you know bachelor's degrees in it and it is related to either engineering or psychology. So I hope a lot more people find it. But it, it is funny that we both kind of just stumbled into it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into this next part of the show that needs no introduction. It's one more thing. It's where we talk about one more thing. Blake, what do you got up this week? All right, this week. So anybody who's listening, I need help. I have started uh, developing Chrome extensions, and I deployed one for a course, and it's cool. I really like it. I have an idea for one that I'm going to make that's very like selfishly oriented, but I'm trying to source out ideas for my first real piece of open source software that I want to be a Chrome extension because it's it's easy to build. There's like There's built-in data storage behind it. So if you could, anybody listening... Think of things that you wish you had access to in Chrome or things that would make your life easier and feel free to reach out to me through either social media at don't panic UX on Twitter, or Instagram, or come into our discord and just at like DM me directly. Um, Cause I would love to kind of build something that actually people want to use versus just kind of going the, my like selfish needs route and building things that I think would be cool. Uh, so I, I want to take the one more minute to throw that out there. Blake, let's talk in the post show. I got an idea for you. Uh, my one more thing here is leading a lab. Like I mentioned at the top, we have our Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. 
Um, and I just want to take my one more thing to introduce our newest members. So we have Rachel Greenberg and uh, Kristen Brown, who's in the chat tonight. Um, and I just want to welcome them to the team and thank you the, for all their contributions so far. We're working on, I keep alluding to this, but we're working on some really exciting things behind the scenes that I can't wait to share with all of you. We're not quite ready to uh, pull that off yet. But um, yeah, now we have, what, three people in the lab with potentially one more on the way. Um, and it's just been, since we started it, it's kind of been crazy with how, how many ideas have been flying out there and how many... Um, you know, like Katie's doing the deep dives and everything. So it's just been going really great. I'm really happy. Um, and if, again, uh, one more plug if for the Digital Media Lab. If you're interested in getting involved with the show, I'm sure we can find something for you to work on that you'll enjoy doing. So uh, like Blake said, reach out to us on any of those social platforms or even our email. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a chat at the very least. Um, yeah, well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Uh, let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. I think it was really interesting, the predictive uh, brainwave stuff. Uh, if you want to, you can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord. Discord is popping, by the way. Or get to us on any of our social, social channels. You can visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, wherever you're listening to or watching this, go ahead and hit that like button. Leave us a comment that really impacts the algorithm, surprisingly. Um, give us a follow. Do all that stuff. Uh, there's a little heart. Anyway, do all that. Leave us a five-star review. That also helps other people find the show. Uh, tell your friends about us. All this is free, by the way. You can do all of this for free. And then if you don't want to, if you want to pay us money, you can do that too. We have a Patreon for you. Consider supporting us there. We got a lot of rewards. We like to give back to the people that support us financially. As always, links to all of our socials and website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstor for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to give you ideas for Chrome extensions? Y'all can find me across social media at Don't Panic UX or in our Discord at Blake. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific for office hours and across media, social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.